today I'm going to be talking about this story of 12-year-old Jesus. It's the only story that connects essentially these birth narratives that we've been listening to over Christmas and then Jesus' public ministry when he uh, grows up. And uh, if you think about this idea that, um, you know, I work with high schoolers, worked with middle schoolers for a long time. This is essentially their one story that they have where they can relate to Jesus at this season of their life. Uh, so I think it's a pretty rich text. There's a lot of good stuff in here, and uh, we're going to read the text together. Um, so I'd invite you to stand, and we're going to be reading from Luke 2, 41 through 52. And you can find this uh, passage on uh, page 833 of the New Testament portion of your pew Bible. Let's read together. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So I'll just try to give you a little context to this story. The, um, this family, Jesus' family, Mary and Joseph, Jesus, are traveling with a group to go celebrate Passover. So this had been a three-day celebration that um, people were essentially required to go celebrate in Jerusalem. And it was uh, very important. And so they traveled about 60 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Uh, probably took about three days. And um, this is, uh, what I try to figure is, this is probably about the distance from Mount Vernon to Seattle. So if you can picture kind of walking that distance in a big group with a caravan, uh, and, and then you're here uh, for the celebration. And, and then what happens is they do the Passover celebration, and then they start heading home. And in the midst of this, Jesus goes missing. And it, it might be a little uh, strange to think, how did Jesus go missing? How are they? It says that they, a day went by before they noticed that he was missing. Um, Bianca is our middle school director here at UPC, and I had a good conversation about, with her about uh, this passage the other day. And uh, she said, she's, she actually says she teaches on this uh, almost once a year to the middle schoolers. Because she says, of course, they can get a lot out of this passage. And she's, she even has props in her office. Like it says at the end that Jesus in, increased in wisdom and stature. And she has like a brain to, to uh, signify growing in wisdom um, and in great middle school director fashion. And uh, she said, she's read several commentaries. This stage in the life of Jesus, he's 
not a man yet, uh, 13 would have been out of childhood, so he's still a child, but it's definitely this awkward in-between phase. So many people would say um, the men thought he was with the women, the women thought he was with the men, and the group in general didn't quite know where he was because they didn't know which group he belonged to in the traveling caravan. Uh, And again, if we're just thinking about how this age group in particular can relate to something like that, I think it's pretty profound because we often don't know what to do with this awkward 12-year-old middle phase. And so that, that's, that's one explanation for what could have been happening here with Jesus. And then they discover that he's missing and they return and they go find him and he is uh, teaching, talking, um, lecturing, who knows, uh, with some elders in the temple and uh, discussing scripture. It says he's asking questions. They're amazed at his answer. But obviously his parents are really confused. Of course they would be. Uh, I, I can't, if I can't find my kids for like, 20 minutes and I don't know where they are. I'm terrified. Uh, it says here they, ha- they had some anxiety. <laughs> I can uh, imagine how much anxiety they had. Um, Jesus has this very lofty answer. Didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? Uh, and they kind of give him a mild rebuke. And then they go home and it says, Mary treasured these things in her heart, which is a pretty sweet way to end this passage. Um, but I have just a few observations I want to make about um, our passage today. And I, I want to make sure I have a, I have a point for you. Because I'm a high school director. And just recently, uh, somebody came, one of the high schoolers came up to me after my talk. And they said, I loved your talk tonight. And I said, oh, that's so nice. Thank you. And she said, I had no idea what you were talking about, but I really liked it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, essentially, you know, when you have a sermon, the way I've the way I understand it is you're supposed to have a word for a very particular congregation. So there's a word that I believe God has for us today. And that now through this passage, I think in terms of UPC, it would be that God intends for us to learn in the context of intergenerational relationships. God intends for us to learn in the context of intergenerational relationships. And, you know, we just finished Kindred. Uh, I also believe God intends for us to learn in the context of multi-ethnic relationships. And God intends us to be around also different genders, all sorts of different people. Different, different, different. Um, so you can think about like the idea of um, men's Bible study. It's not bad, but it's not sufficient. You can't, can't just always be learning exclusively about Christianity through being people just like you. Uh, and, and same goes for age. Um, so here are some observations. The first is that in this passage, Jesus is exhibiting normal middle school tween behavior. Totally normal. Uh, and, and here's the mistake that I think we make about um, Jesus in this passage. At least growing up in the church for me, I, I think we over-typically emphasize, overemphasize Christ's divinity in this passage, which would be a big mistake. Because if, this is, if one of the hopes of Jesus is that it is God coming down to be with humans in an incarnational way, to understand, to relate, and to be in solidarity with us, this is the one opportunity a middle schooler can see that Jesus could understand and get them. And so uh, right off the bat, we see that um, Jesus is running away, right? And, and to me, this is a very, a very natural thing for a middle schooler to do. I remember um, my first day I was teaching at Bethany when I was 23 years old. Uh, again, we're in this youth house, and behind me there's a window. And I had only been giving Young Life talks at that time, and I was a little nervous to be teaching more substantial, like 45-minute lesson to these middle schoolers. And I, I could tell they were antsy and, and looking behind me the whole time, but I didn't see what was going on. And eventually I realized there was two middle schoolers on the roof of the church. 
and uh, didn't know who they were, but I knew they were middle schoolers and pretty much technically my responsibility. Uh, trying to get them down, but they wouldn't come down. I can't keep doing my lesson because everybody's distracted by these kids. I don't know how they got up there. And eventually church gets out and everybody comes out and they're like, there's some kids on the roof. And I'm like, I don't even know who these kids are. Uh, but that, I'd, I'd, I'd soon find out that that was pretty standard for a Sunday school in any event that I had with uh, middle, middle schoolers. Now, I also have a 12-year-old daughter. And uh, so she's Jesus' age in this story. And last year, uh, she goes to McClure Middle School on Queen Anne. And last year, she would come home, walk home after school. Just right, she almost got home at the same time almost every day. Walk home, walk home. She had a whole afternoon routine. Turns 12 this year, seventh grade, she never comes home. She's always hanging out on the Ave with her friends afterwards. Queen Anne Ave, not University Ave. Um, it's almost like it's clockwork. Like at this season, it's very natural for kids to start pulling away. And, and that's actually a healthy thing when you study childhood development. Um, so on the one hand, you can think, oh, these kids are being disrespectful. They're out of line. They don't respect their elders. We, we should be worried. And of course, you shouldn't just be letting kids run all over the roof whenever they want. But uh, to a certain extent, at least in your own mind and heart, you can be celebrating a, a kid's natural tendency to want to start pulling away and being a little bit more adventurous and daring. And it seems like Jesus was doing that. Um, another, another thing is uh, Eric, Eric Erickson is a famous childhood development psychologist, and he had these stages of development. And uh, the season that starts at 12, which is where Jesus was, is called Identity versus Role Confusion. And this, this lasts from about 12 to 18, okay? And... Uh, if you just see the two things that are at play here, identity versus role confusion, the thing that you're supposed to figure out in this little age season is some semblance of a solid identity. And the way that that happens is you push back on the traditions and authority figures in your life. Uh, so um, it's natural and good and healthy for a teenager to push, to push back, to argue, to question. Uh, so again, one of, the, one of the things I bump into with adults sometimes is, uh, getting annoyed at kids who are doing this instead of celebrating this natural, healthy tendency and even celebrating it and inviting it sometimes, as hard as it can be. I, I was writing this sermon yesterday, and uh, my 12 and 14-year-old were bothering me. <laughs> and I'm like trying to write a sermon about listening and accepting, and I'm like, this is really ironic that I'm having a hard time with my kids today. Um, but anyways, if we're, if, we're, if we're supposed to be accentuating uh, both Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity. This is a theological conviction that we have, is that Jesus, we call it like a right paradox. Jesus is 100% human, 100% God. Um, so we don't want to overemphasize. That's when we start to fall into different heresies of some kind. So um, if Jesus is 100% human, we want to take this passage and reflect on his humanity, and I think it's important to say he's acting like a fairly normal middle schooler. So middle schoolers take heart. Jesus understands. Um, my second observation is that uh, Jesus surrounded himself with teachers. Uh, so today at 10 o'clock, I had a bunch of middle schoolers in the room, and I wanted to make sure I had made some comments specifically for the middle schoolers. So what I'm going to say is directed towards middle schoolers, but let's just say young people, and then let's also just say all of us. <laughs> um, but I love this idea of like middle schoolers having this one opportunity to relate to Jesus. They can relate to Jesus, see that he's like them. Um, but he makes an important decision. He runs away and, and finds teachers to sit, at, 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 sit with and learn from. 
And I think this is an important thing for middle schoolers, high schoolers, young adults to start doing now, to take seriously the teachers, the people that have an impact on their life and a say into what they believe and how they're being formed. So um, uh, I think a lot of, of this happens naturally through our parents and the people that take care of us. But here at UPC, uh, we have a program called The Rock. And Bianca, like I said, is our middle school director. And this is my opinion, but I think it's true. Um, I think Bianca is probably one of the best middle school directors in the whole country. And she's right here at UPC. And if you ever get a chance to talk to Bianca about middle schoolers, uh, she gets so fired up. She's passionate. She gets tears in her eyes. It's this one thing that having worked with volunteers over the years, trying to teach them how to work with kids, the one thing you can't really teach is deep, genuine love for the kids that you work with. Uh, and Bianca has that. She's also just a great teacher, not only in the way she instructs the kids, but um, she's a great teacher just in the way she models out her faith on a daily basis. So I would say, for middle schoolers especially, and uh, if, maybe, maybe, maybe to all of us, if you haven't got a chance to talk to Bianca or introduce yourself, go meet her. She's awesome. <laughs> um, but in general, aside from just the programs you attend here at church, I, I encourage you to think about the people that you're learning from. You know, a lot of people, and especially young people, follow a lot of YouTubers or Instagrammers or uh, Twitter accounts, you, other things too. <laughs> uh, I'm getting to the point where I'm getting a little bit out of it too. But um, I, think, I think you can balance sort of the saccharine, light YouTubing that, that sometimes is just very entertaining with maybe finding a few people that might be pouring into your life in a more substantial, healthy way. There's this philosopher named Peter Rollins that I love to watch. Now, I wouldn't want that for a middle schooler because it's pretty heavy, but um, anyways... So that's the second observation. Jesus surrounded himself with teachers. The third observation is more for the adults in the room. And I really want everybody to understand, I'm not just talking to parents. Remember, I'm talking to us as a community of people who have a calling to nurture and care for our kids. So this is, this is all of us together. Whether you work or volunteer with the kids here in this church, we still have a collective call to love and care for and nurture our kids, okay? Um, so... Uh, the community took Jesus seriously. That's the, that's the final observation. The community took Jesus seriously. So one thing I'd like for you to think about is something I talk about with uh, volunteers and parents often is this idea of wisdom. I think my, most of my life growing up when I hear adults talk about their role in a kid's life, they think that they are sort of the bringers of wisdom. They have the wisdom. The kids need the wisdom. They come into the relationship and they tell and speak wisdom. <laughs> and I think this is sort of an unhelpful or harmful dichotomy or starting point for a relationship. Uh, so if you think of actually, both parties have wisdom, right? Uh, kids, middle schoolers, have profound, wise things to say if we're willing to listen. And uh, they, they, don't, they don't necessarily want you approaching them with all of the wisdom that you have to offer. That's kind of a turnoff to them. Uh, they have so much they want to say and so much that we can learn from them. One of the things that I love about this passage is it says Jesus was in the temple asking questions. Uh, I think that's one of the best things that middle schoolers have done for me in my life, high schoolers too. Uh, they often will ask the questions that we have learned to not ask because it's either culturally embarrassing or it's a troubling question that we kind of would rather forget about, and they'll just ask it, which is sort of a, a, a prophetic dance for a middle schooler to have, uh, teaching us to get back in touch with these profound and important questions in our lives. And that's what Bianca says. She says she has a whole file of um, 
questions that middle schoolers asked that she loved. Uh, and so I, I'm not going to read them now because I'm kind of running out of time, but um, they're awesome questions. Uh, so um, I, one last thing I'd love to emphasize is here at UPC, we have a confirmation class every year. And just to, prove, just to make my point, um, uh, what, we, what we have the kids do at the end of this confirmation experience is they write a statement of faith. And I try to emphasize over weeks and weeks and weeks uh, that uh, this statement of faith is meant to be a snapshot of what you believe right now. This is not a test. This is not something you're reading to make your parents feel good or to make me feel like I've done some sort of good job as a youth pastor. And uh, it's, it's not gaining entry into anything. It's, it's an opportunity for you to say where you're at with God and us to celebrate and affirm it. And just to make my point even further, I try to say nobody's ever really taken me up on this. What if you wrote a statement of faith, talking to like a ninth grader or a sophomore now, and you said something along the lines of, I have a lot of doubts about God. I don't know if Jesus is God. Um, I like coming to church. I believe there's something important for me to learn here. I like being in the community. I like service. I believe service is important. You know, just basic essential stuff, but you're not really affirming that Jesus is God? I don't know. It, that's so fine. Yeah, every, every kid reads their statement of faith to the session, and the session celebrates them and prays for them and confirms them. Uh, so the point is not uh, to prove yourself, to take a test. It feels like the complete opposite of school. The, the, the thing that they need to know is they're, they're already welcome. We're here to affirm and celebrate where they're at. Um, so, our challenge as adults, I like to think about this passage. Uh, again, if we're overemphasizing Christ's divinity in this passage, um, we think, well, Jesus, the 12-year-old, must have shown up and just started speaking with his God powers. And that's why the adults were listening. Rather than wondering, maybe Jesus is just saying some fairly standard, interesting 12-year-old boy stuff, but he's surrounded by teachers who are taking him seriously, Right? Not just because he's saying profound God things. Maybe he's, maybe he's saying some profound God things, but I'm, I'm sure it was more 12-year-old boy things. It looks like he had a lot of curiosity. Um, this is one final little thing I want to read to you guys. And I, I, I gave my notes away because people liked this this morning. And I also had a book, and I gave that away. People were really liking this. Um, this is a woman. Her, her name is Lisa Damore. She's a child psychologist, and she wrote a book recently called Untangled. It's how to talk to your teenage daughter. And even though I'm a youth pastor, I'm still trying to read books on how to talk to my teenage daughter. Um, Julie Metzger used to go here. I went to a conference that she did recently, all still talk, how to talk to your teenage daughter. This is an article that came out in the New York Times recently that sort of summarizes some of the main points of her book, Untangled. And these were five pieces of advice that she was giving to adults on how to talk to kids. Um, the first one was ask permission. So don't just start lecturing someone. Uh, I've never talked to a high schooler that said, oh, my parents lectured me last night. It was so fun. I really enjoyed that lecture. I wish they did that more often. They don't do that. Ask permission before you give advice. Um, the second one is lose the phrase when I was a teenager. Teenagers hate that phrase because it automatically implies that you think you can relate to them. You can't because you weren't a teenager at the same time that they're a teenager. They have all sorts of different concerns and problems that you can't relate to. So don't say when I was a teenager. Um, another one is uh, don't make it personal. Don't make it about them. Don't make it like you, 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 you. Just try to bring up a topic and kind of make it more objective that way and talk around the topic. This is another good one is um, help weigh options, don't weigh in. 
So don't say, this is the right way to do it. Say, there's this way, there's this way, there's this way, there's this way. What do you think? You know, giving them the chance to take responsibility. Um, finally, I like this one. I'll read a little bit about it. It says, appreciate the limits of your understanding. And she goes on to say, we often try to guide teenagers on topics that are foreign to us but familiar to them. For example, many adolescents can name a dozen e-liquid flavors, several e-cigarette devices, and tell you which of their classmates vapes, with whom, where, and under what conditions. Given this, it's fair to assume that our teenagers might have the same this-ought-to-be-good reaction to us saying, we need to talk about vaping, that we would have if our teenager said to us, we need to talk about your mortgage. Not that we should clam up about vaping and other important health and safety topics, but we should own what we don't know. We can start by asking, would you explain vaping to me? And follow up with earnest questions. We reduce the odds then of an eye roll when we eventually offer that we also read an article on the hazards of nicotine and ask our teenager if she wants to see it. Just some nice practical advice on talking to kids, approaching them with curiosity. Um, so I think this uh, idea that God intends for us to learn in the context of intergenerational relationships I, I want you to understand and consider that our young people have something important to teach us. I think I often call them prophets in our midst. Uh, they, have, they have insightful things to say about Scripture. They have insightful and important questions that they are asking. And I think God is inviting us into these profound relationships uh, that we oftentimes miss out on. I'm going to end with a quick story. Um, so about seven years ago, this was a New Year's Day, so my kids were about seven and five, I had this idea that we were going to have a nice dinner where we were going to talk about like our goals for the coming year, <laughs> with a five and seven-year-old. Maybe our hopes, I, I don't know, I was kind of prepping them, and we were going to have a fancy dinner, and uh, I remember as the dinner kept approaching, I was working really hard on a kind of a fancy dinner, getting the table set very fancy, candles. And five and seven, they kept messing things up. They kept coming in the kitchen and messing things up. They kept messing up the silverware. And as we're getting closer to this nice, profound, intimate, sweet time with our kids, I was getting more agitated and more micromanaging. And uh, it gets time for the dinner, and I've already been yelling at them all leading up. So already, I'm, I'm kind of blowing it as a dad at this point. And um, now we're heading into this time, and I say, okay, we're going to share our, our goals for the year. <laughs> oh, five and a seven-year-old. Maybe it was not just goals. I, I, I didn't have high expectations, but I wanted to be a nice time of sharing. So we'll say, Marissa, my wife, will start. Maybe she'll warm us up, you know. And so she says, well, this year for New Year's, and they just stood on their chairs and started screaming and, and clapping. And I slammed my hand on the table. I was like, stop it. I'm so sick of this. I've been telling you all day. And now your mom's talking and you're interrupting her. I'm so tired of you disrespecting her. You've been disrespecting me. You messed with the table. And uh, after I kind of did this rant, uh, my son Jack at the time, he was seven, he just very sheepishly goes, well, at church they told us whenever we hear the, new, the phrase New Year's, we're supposed to cheer. <laughs> oh, I felt so bad and embarrassed. I feel sad and embarrassed just telling the story. Uh, uh, but I do think this is a metaphor for our interactions with kids. I think we're so preoccupied with our own agenda and what we want them to get out of the experience and what we want to get out of experience that we can oftentimes sort of abuse our power and stifle their natural joy and curiosity. 
And um, the sad thing is that, that that's harmful to them, but also we miss out in a profound way. In that moment, I missed out on a profound opportunity to celebrate life with my kids, to join in their joyful celebration, um, and to, you know, be in relationship with them, essentially. So let's not have that be how we are, <laughs> please. I implore you. Let's, let's approach these kids with, with curiosity, with wonder, with celebration. Let's allow ourselves to respond to the invitation that God is giving us. I think our kids here at UPC, our middle schoolers, our tweens, have profound things to teach us. And I think the question for us today is, do we have the wisdom to listen? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we need your help. Uh, we have a lot of baggage from our own growing up, and uh, we all approach things with anxiety and agendas, and uh, we need your Holy Spirit to fill us and give us wisdom and um, move us to approach our youth with a new sense of curiosity. Would you help us do that um, now and into the new year? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.